Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. If you're listening to my show, you're looking for tips on how to work smarter, not harder. And let's be real, you're already working hard to earn your money, but how do you make sure that your money is working hard for you? Here's how. With a Betterment Automated Investment and Savings app, your money will go to work. They've got technology that will provide you with advanced tools, and they're built to help maximize your returns, not to mention your time. They have expert-built portfolios of low-cost exchange-traded funds. You know I love those exchange-traded funds. There's automated investing technology, and as part of that, automated rebalancing. Many of you have been asking about rebalancing, and it sort of feels like a hard thing to do on your own. With Betterment, easy peasy. They do it for you. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, Performance is not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Saturday, July 24th. And uh, we recorded this interview with Michael Lewis a while back. It was for the release of his book, which is called The Premonition. And uh, it's a basically a story about the pandemic, and and frankly, it is a uh, a really interesting dive into some of the old issues that existed at the CDC and uh, the United States healthcare and public policy. So all of this is uh, sort of predates the pandemic, but we get into the pandemic. I also want to be clear that this was recorded before a terrible tragedy occurred in Michael Lewis's life. His daughter was killed in an automobile accident. If you read about that or heard about that, we don't mention it because this was recorded before that occurred. So uh, here is the beginning part of our interview with Michael Lewis. And, And in this, we are going to talk about some of the characters that help him tell the story of the pandemic and also the role of the Centers for Disease Control and what role that they played leading up to the pandemic and throughout the pandemic. Here is part one of our interview with Michael Lewis. Tell me a little bit about how you found each of the three characters. Talk to me about Charity. So Charity Dean was the local health officer in Santa Barbara County before she was identified as such a spectacular local health officer who was pulled up to run run the state of California or be second in command at the state of California. But it was her local experience to me that was the most intriguing because that's where we manage disease at the local level. We're structured to manage it in, in at the local level. And that's who's empowered to do a sort of be the battlefield commander and who they're the, they're the people who are fighting the war. Uh, they're the soldiers in the trenches and we have a weird situation where the generals, the kind of CDC people, actually don't do it. They, and they've never been in battle, usually. And Charity herself was so obsessed with communicable, communicable disease and so intent on doing the job to its kind of limits 
that she exposed both the weaknesses in the system, the importance of the character of the public official, and sort of identified where a serious problem like a pandemic occurred, where we were going to fail. And how did you get connected with her? Well, all roads led to her. It wasn't, it was actually a no brainer. Two of the other characters, the other two main characters in the book, plus two or three other people at some point between March the 15th and April the 1st said, you got to talk to Charity Dean. She was the second in command at the, at the California. I wrote a note to the Newsom administration, formally asking to talk to her. They wrote back and said, basically, she doesn't want to talk to you and she's not available. I put up with that for about three weeks and then I got her, her, her cell phone number and she said, they never asked me and I'm happy to talk to you. So that, that's how I met her. Let's go into um, Derisi. You knew him a long time ago. You were sort of connected to him a long time ago. Is that right? Yeah, that was in a funny way. Five years ago, I published a book called Flash Boys. A San Francisco money manager wanted to have dinner ostensibly to talk about it. And instead, what he wanted to do is is insist the next book I was going to write was going to be about this guy named Joe Derisi. And I had to meet him because he was such a character for me. And he was so insistent, I went and did it. And this was five years ago. Unbelievably, he was right that I, I thought, God, if I had some reason to write about virus hunting, I would do this right now. If I hadn't gotten a D in high school biology, I would do this right now. And I told Joe, I, you know, I said, you are like an odd person whose stories, I don't even have to write. I just have to microwave them. Um, they're so good, but I don't know what to do with it. I made a little file, put it off to one side. And the pandemic happens and I call him up and say, like, what are you doing now? And what he was doing then was turning his institution, which is a Chan Zuckerberg biohub in, in San Francisco, into a fast, big COVID testing lab and going on a big virus hunt. So he, he instantly became someone I was kind of like riding shotgun with through the pandemic. Let's just go back a second, because I know a lot of people are thinking that this is a natural extension of your previous book, The Fifth Risk, this idea that, you know, we have this churn of folks in government. And I'm wondering for you, do you see it as a natural outgrowth of the fifth risk? Or was the pandemic itself the the real motivating force to getting going and finding characters and writing about it in real time? It was a natural sequel, right? The fifth risk frames the federal government as this manager of a portfolio of existential risks and pandemic disease is one of them. It's the only tool we really have to deal with these risks. The point of the book was we've let these tools corrode. So the question was, what happens if something bad happens? And then this was the bad thing that did happen. So I felt naturally that I should write about it. I had no idea how to write about it. And I ended up writing about it in an entirely different way from what I would have expected to write about it. I think I would have expected, if you'd asked me in advance, that I had gone to Washington and it would have been a pathology of the Trump administration. As I got to know more about it, and I found the characters who I felt were the most interesting to see the event through, that became a non-starter because they all, in the, not in their opinions, in their lived experience, reveal that all the problems we had in dealing with the pandemic were present before Trump. 
I thought it was so interesting to learn about the the kind of this weird spread out system where you think, oh, CDC, that's the hub and everything comes out of that from the spoke. As we were living it in real time, we realized that, you know, well, no, New York has different rules in California than different counties. Was that something that surprised you as well? Learning the history of the CDC and then learning how on the ground it felt like there were thousands of different counties that had thousands of different ways of approaching this? Yes. I had no idea what our public what our public health system was. I didn't know. I just I, I'd never been inside a local public health office. Never met a local public health officer. If you'd asked me what they did and you put a gun to my head, I'd probably guess like they make sure I don't get food poisoning in restaurants, that kind of thing. Right. I wouldn't have thought, oh, actually, there's a Netflix drama going on inside my local health office every day with disease outbreak. That it's tuberculosis and hep C and meningitis or whatever it is, but it is there's a drama a day. So it did surprise me these people existed. It shocked me the extent we had shoved all the risk and none of the reward down on this lowly official. And there was no air cover for them from above, that the CDC was sort of removed and detached. And that if they were doing your job aggressively like Charity Dean was, you were basically always threatened by the CDC. You better be right, because if you're wrong, you know, we're going to have your head on a platter rather than we're going to help you. And the CDC has such a weird role because in you would have thought, or at least I would have thought that, okay, well, they're the ones who are providing the guidance. The folks on the ground are carrying it out, but that's not exact at all what happened. And what I found sort of sobering and upsetting was that the CDC feels like this weird academic institution that conducts postmortems. Like, okay, let me tell you what just happened. So what is the role of the CDC in your reporting out on this book? That is the way they frame their role now. They're called the Centers for Disease Control, so you would think they would control disease. Yeah. But controlling disease involves making decisions in sort of battlefield conditions with lots of ambiguity and when you don't have enough data. And that's particularly true of a pandemic. And if you wait until you have enough data that you've got the good academic paper, it's too late. The diseases overrun your defenses. I think there are a bunch of reasons, but they are ill-suited to that now. And they basically retreated into this academic life. And to the extent that Charity Dean would control some outbreak. They would fight her every step of the way, threaten her every step of the way, then when it was done, use her as an example of how to do it. So what happens when that happens? You've got, that means you've got the bravest public health officers, the local ones, all feeling mildly contemptuous of this operation that's supposed to be the leader. All knowing that if there's actually, if a, if a war breaks out, we don't have a general who actually knows what to do. All knowing that, uh, as Charity put it, you're on your own if you're a local health officer and no one's coming to save you. All that startled me. I mean, it just just seemed like an idiot system. And it's probably, it's a relic of an era where there was not the possibility of network, a networked response, pre-digital. All their, all their records are on paper. You know, the fax machine is their latest technology. You could actually, without the CDC or with a very light touch from above, create a spider web. And if you did, if you actually int- introduced the technology and they were all kind of responding together in the web. I like, so if someone identifies as, oh my God, there's a new strain of COVID we just detected in Santa Clara County. Everybody in the web knows instantly. Everybody in the web knows how they dealt with it. Best practices get established and shared, all that. And, and you wouldn't even need a heavy handed overseer. But one of your other characters, Carter Mesher, I found him fascinating because he did create the handbook 
uh, 15 years ago. Yeah. And what happened? It felt like, oh, well, he just gave the handbook to uh, everyone in Asia. That's why they had such a beautiful way of controlling the di- like what happened here? Like, how did we have the playbook and then give it to I want to say else. the other team, but we give it to everybody else. Well, you want everybody else to have it, right? Right. Um, exactly. It is amazing that this guy, these two doctors in the Bush White House figure out a strategy kind of from the ground up, how to slow a virus and how to prevent illness and death before you have a vaccine. They sell it to the CDC. They write it for the CDC and it becomes internalized to the CDC and the CDC thinks it was their idea. But then the CDC proselytizes it. And so the problem that Richard and Carter missed, the mistake in their thinking was thinking that it was good enough to give it to the CDC and the CDC would manage the United States well. That was the mistake. Okay, that was part one of our interview with Michael Lewis. The book is called The Premonition, and it's uh, really very interesting. And and as always, an easy read, because as far as I'm concerned, Michael Lewis is one of the greatest writers out there. He calls this The Premonition, a pandemic story. So you can go check it out. Tomorrow, we'll have the second part of the interview. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to do something nice for someone else today. And of course, remember the mantra, grit, growth, grace. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.